Acts chapter 8. Uh, my title, title I put for this evening is The Gospel Goes to Africa. I thought we'd uh, conclude this brief series on speaking about Jesus. Uh, we're just looking at the few of the many examples in the book of Acts, uh, other than the ones we've already looked at in the course of the series, um, where people are speaking to other people about Jesus Christ. And um, the first thing I, I want to say is that I guess for many of us, the thoughts of the Gospel in Africa we think of sort of recent history. I suppose for many of us we'd associate it with people like David Livingstone. We'd be looking back to maybe the middle of the uh, 19th century and we'd be thinking of Africa being penetrated by the Gospel then. Uh, and yet of course it happens actually here right back in Acts chapter 8. In, in fact it's very possible that the Gospel was preached in Africa before it was ever preached in Europe. Uh, this, this was an Ethiopian travelling back to Ethiopia and I can't but believe that when he got back there he spoke to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what can we learn from this encounter between Philip and this Ethiopian? Well the first thing I want us to see, and in fact I guess it's where we're going to spend most of the time this evening, is this. The sovereignty of God in evangelism. I hope I don't need to convince anyone here tonight of the fact that God is sovereign in all things, including indeed especially in uh, salvation and in the work of the Gospel. The context of this encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian is, is very interesting, I suggest to you. Uh, the opening of chapter 8, uh, Philip is there in Samaria, read from verse 4. Those who have been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I read in verse 6 that the crowds were filled with joy. With one, as one person, they paid attention to what was being said. Uh, we go on a little further and we find that the elders in Jerusalem sent down Peter and John to back up Philip's work there. And they came down from Jerusalem. They joined uh, Philip in particular. They brought the, the news of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life um, and brought uh, the Holy Spirit to those people. And then we go on down and we read in verse 25 uh, that indeed the gospel then started being preached throughout Samaria and the cities and towns round about. So an amazing account of uh, perhaps the first revival uh, that, that we see in scripture uh, post the resurrection uh, apart from uh, uh, that Pentecost day itself. And there in the midst of this amazing uh, revival with Philip right at the very centre of it we suddenly get as we come to verse 26 God just taking Philip out of that place and putting him down in the desert to speak to one man now can I just ask you to think about it for a minute if you was in charge of organising Philip's preaching schedule what you would have planned for him there he is down in Samaria there's this massive revival going on there's people flocking to hear the gospel, they're hearing it, they're believing it, they're giving their lives to Christ, their lives are being transformed, the city's filled with joy, the gospel's spreading and it's growing there in that place. What would you be planning for Philip next? Well, I guess you're going to stay there for a few months, Philip, and see how it goes. If it builds, we'll send some more people down to help you. And then maybe you can work out from there. Maybe you should be going on a nationwide ministry throughout Samaria. It's obviously a very receptive ground for the gospel. And God says, you know what my plan is? My plan is to just put you down in the desert. And all you're going to do there is meet one person. A 
and speak to one person about Jesus Christ. My friend, we do need to grasp this truth as Christians. God is not interested in masses, he's interested in individuals. He's not interested in numbers, he's interested in nations. And that's a very different thing. If God wanted, if his plan had been to save everyone through the death of Jesus Christ, he would have saved everyone through the death of Jesus Christ. If God's plan had been to save everyone through that death and he doesn't do it, he has failed. And we have got a God who has failed in his primary objective. The death of Jesus Christ is nothing other than a massive failure. The biggest failure in the whole of eternity would be the death of Jesus Christ if God's intent had been to save everyone through it. That was not God's intent. God's intent was to save men and women out of every tribe and nation and people's group and tongue and language on earth. That was God's intent. And that God will do. And God was as concerned to save an Ethiopian as he was a Samaritan. And just as he was saving people there in Samaria, so he intended to save people in Ethiopia. And that man, God intended to save. And he intended to save him on that day. And of no more glorious encouragement to evangelism than the truth that God is sovereignly in control of it. I, I, I don't know how you can start to go about telling other people about Jesus Christ unless you're certain that God is in control. He takes the words, he opens the mind, he opens the heart, he gives the faith, he gives the repentant spirit, he makes his grace so irresistible to that person that they have no choice but to come and fall at the cross of Christ. It isn't my words. The words of scripture, yes, but not my words. It isn't my presentation. It isn't how well I do it. It isn't how effectively I plead. It is God's sovereign work to take my words, however faltering they are, to take the wonder of the truth of the words of Scripture and apply them to the heart and the mind of those he is saving. Acts 13, 48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Luke says, get it right. It wasn't that all those who believed came to eternal life, it was all those who'd been appointed to eternal life when they heard the gospel message, believed in it. Jesus put it like this himself in John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. How often we see to see it around the other way. We say, oh, you're, you're, you're one of... God's flock, you're a Christian, if you believe. Jesus said, no, 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 no. He turns around to these Jews and says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Those who are chosen of the Lord believe when they hear the gospel and when God breathes his own grace to bear irresistibly on their minds and hearts so that they see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For when God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll praise God for his sovereign work of breaking into the closed mind and the hardened heart, of giving faith to believe to the faithless sinner, humility to repent to the proud and stubborn of heart, who takes the most rebellious sinner and transforms him into a 
wonderful saint in an instant. We see God's sovereignty in just taking Philip out of Samaria and placing him there. That unit would have just travelled down that way and would have been none the wiser what those scriptures meant except God put Philip there next to him. And when God puts Philip there next to him, isn't it amazing? What is the guy doing? He's actually sitting there in his chariot reading scripture. More than that, he's reading from Isaiah, the most evangelistic book in the Old Testament. More than that, he's actually reading from chapter 53 of Isaiah. More than that, he's actually reading specifically some of the clearest verses in that chapter about Jesus Christ. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. My friends, you've got a choice here. Either God is sovereign and God arranged that or that is the most amazing coincidence in the history of the world. God ordained that meeting and he ordained the circumstances for it. And God had it in the mind of that man that he was reading that scripture. God was already working in him. Philip comes up to him and Philip doesn't even have to speak to him. Philip says, uh, you know, do you understand what you're reading? Well, in fact, even before that, verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? He already wants to know what this is about. And Philip's just able to share the gospel with him and he comes to faith in Christ. Isn't that amazing? My friend, how can you speak to someone else without resting in the certain knowledge that God is in control of that conversation? How do you start when you don't believe that there is a sovereign God who's going to put the right words in your mouth to say and is going to just work in that person's mind and heart that if he's going to save them they're going to understand what you say and they're going to respond to what you say. If you've never read it, I'd recommend Jaya Packer's book on Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's an excellent book. It's not a big book but it's a really good book. Praise the Lord that he is in control you do your work I'll do my work and we trust God to do his and God will do it well now can I just suggest a few practical points before we go any further first one is this one soul at a time is the goal what I mean is by that is that if we ever start thinking about numbers I'll start thinking in a, with a secular mindset won't I that's, that, that's secularism that, that's business mentality the, the goal is the maximum number of people possible sort of mentality. As soon as I start thinking like that about the gospel, I'm going to go terribly wrong because that isn't God's goal. Matthew 7:13-14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus said in Matthew 22:14, For many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel goes to many. The invitation goes to many, but God chooses few out of those to grant the gift of eternal life to. When the massive crowds start deserting Jesus, do you remember it? Jesus started preaching hard truths about himself, who he was, what he had to face. And the crowds just turned their back on him and walked away. 
Jesus didn't change his message. He didn't compromise his message. He didn't plead with them to come back. He simply turned to those who were truly his and said, are you going to leave me as well? His concern with was the integrity of the gospel message he was preaching and the effect it had on those who were called to eternal life. And Peter turns around and says, where will we go, Lord? You've got the words of eternal life. Peter was chosen. Peter was called. Peter knew what was what by God's grace. What I'm pleading for is this, that you don't swing to one extreme or the other when we're speaking about Jesus. There are those who are only interested in preaching to large numbers. I heard um, someone was telling me of a preacher who very recently was commenting on a church service in his church the week before and he said there were so few there really, he said it really was a waste of my time having prepared for it. How can you think like that? How can you reason like that? Who are too few people to be worth your while speaking to or preaching to? One is worth speaking to, zero are not worth speaking to, yeah? If there's one person there, they're worth speaking to, aren't they? If there's one person in your workplace who doesn't know Christ, they're worth speaking to. If there's one person in your home who's not saved, they're worth speaking to. If there's one person in your group of friends who's not a Christian, they're worth speaking to. It's one soul at a time. For some it's all about numbers. They wouldn't consider joining a church unless there's two or three hundred people there already. They wouldn't consider anything a success unless at least 50 people come forward at the end and sign up to, to be saved. My friend, it's not all about numbers. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, God is sovereign, so I don't need to speak to anyone. God's sovereign, he'll save them anyway. Yes, he will. God is sovereign. And every one of the elect will be there in heaven. There will be a perfect number. Not one will be missing. That does not mean that we can be sinful and rebellious against God and disobey his word of going into all the world and preaching the gospel. The idea that I can do nothing because God will do it all is totally contrary to the teaching of Scripture. God is sovereign and his chosen way is through the preaching of the word by his people. But my friend, if you get the chance to just speak to one person tomorrow, that is God's business you're on. And that one person is worth speaking to. And can I plead with you while you're speaking to that one person to put all other people out of your mind and heart. That is the person in that moment who God has put there with you. And give it everything you've got be it some little old lady who's you've never met before and you don't ever expect to meet again, that little old lady's soul is as precious as anybody else's. Plead with her, speak with her, share the gospel with her and trust God to work. And he will do what pleases him. Do you remember Jesus with that woman at the well in Samaria? One lady and we wouldn't have even called her a lady probably if we'd known her. One woman, almost certainly rejected by her community, probably rejected by her friends. One woman who's living a sinful life, one woman who's got no thought of Christ in her mind. And Jesus Christ goes to such lengths to have one conversation with that one woman, doesn't he? And he shares the gospel with her. And God just 
wakes her mind up like that in her heart. And she goes away pleading with the people of her town to come out and listen to the Messiah who she has found. Second thing can I say to you is this, don't despise little things. What I mean by that is it would have been so easy for Philip, wouldn't it, to have been caught up there in Samaria and all of that was going on there and then suddenly to find himself in the desert and one man sitting there and Philip sort of had the mind of sort of, oh wow, you know. I, I, I mean, there I was preaching hundreds, maybe thousands and there was people coming to Christ every few hours and, and now look what I'm doing. What have I done wrong? You know, you know why, why, why can't I carry on doing that? that? That would be so human, wouldn't it? Don't despise little things. No work of God's is little in his sight. And if God's just put you next to one person and you're patiently witnessing to them day in, day out in your place of work and you might feel you're getting nowhere and you feel, why is it that, that I'm doing this when someone else is successfully speaking to so many and seeing so many come to Christ? Oh my friends, don't despise little things. How many missionary stories do you read? A missionaries that are on the mission field for year after year after year after year before they saw any fruit at all for their labour. Look at Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and all of those going out to take the gospel to those Indians and they don't even get the chance as far as we know to share the gospel with any of them. You say, what a waste of time. What a waste of lives. How can it be a waste of lives when it's given for the gospel of Jesus Christ? They've got the closest place to the throne in glory above. They were martyred for Christ for taking the gospel to those Indians. And by God's grace, not through them but through their wives and through their children, those tribes were brought to Christ. Don't despise little things. The third thing is this, don't refuse difficult opportunities. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Philip? God didn't give him a choice. God didn't come to him and say, Philip, I want you to move down there. Now God just did it. But, but can you imagine how it, Philip could have thought about it? He's in Samaria. He's in cities. All the amenities of cities. Nice places to eat. Nice place to sleep. Congenial company. Wonderful gospel opportunity. People coming, clamouring to hear the gospel message. And God takes him to a hot, dusty, yucky desert. Nowhere comfortable to sleep. No nice food to eat. No restaurant to go into. No Kentucky fried chicken to go and eat. Stuck there in the middle of a desert. And then there's this Ethiopian and he wants to share the gospel with him. But the Ethiopian ain't going to stay there. He's on a journey. He's got to get back home. So if Philip's going to share it, he's going to have to get up in the chariot with him and ride with him, which is going off in the wrong direction somewhere. He doesn't know where he's going and... How easy it would have been, wouldn't it, to have refused a difficult opportunity. But Philip doesn't. He says, if it means I've got to go in a desert, if it means I've got to go on a journey I don't want to go on, I would do it. Because that's what God's calling me to do. To proclaim the gospel. And after that one conversation, God says, okay, Philip, that's all I brought you here for. And the Lord just takes him away again. It's bit amazing. Friend, can I encourage you to consider each and every opportunity you get in life very carefully before you turn it down?
maybe it's in your workplace and you get the chance to go and work in another department for a few weeks or something and your immediate response inside is no I don't want to do that can I just encourage you to just consider the possibility that maybe God wants to put you there for a couple of weeks because there's someone there you can talk to you know maybe it's a case that you normally sit on that table in the canteen and you know it's getting too many to sit on that table and you think well that's the table I sit on and they're my friends and maybe it's just possible that God wants you to go and start sitting on a different table because maybe there's someone over there who you could talk to about Jesus Christ maybe someone says can I share a lift into work with you for uh, the next few weeks because my car's at it it's the last thing you want to do you like the privacy and you like the quietness and you like just being able to drive along and pray and worship the Lord maybe God just wants you to share the gospel with that person whatever it might be just because the situation isn't comfortable to us just because it isn't what we want of ourselves doesn't mean to say that God doesn't want to use that maybe you're going through something very hard in your life at the moment and you can't see why on earth you're going through it maybe it's because God wants to use that maybe what you're experiencing there God is going to use later for him maybe people you're meeting through that are people that God wants you to share the gospel with maybe what, what you're understanding through that is something that you can somehow use for him later I remember I remember when I was doing my degree and uh, we had the guy who was uh, director of covenanters at the time wonderful Christian man uh, come down to uh, take some services in the church and I was talking to him privately I said I, I really feel I ought to just pack up my degree I had about another six months to do of it and I just said it's the, the, the amount of time I'm giving to it is just interfering too much with Christian things and I think he gave me some very very wise advice he said carry on with it and finish it he said what you learn in doing that you can always apply to the Lord's work later if you want to and, and I now value the truth of what he said just being able to study well just knowing how to, to handle books well just knowing how to find material well and research material well is so useful in the Lord's work and, and I think so often God gives us things to do and we can struggle with them and we look at them and say I don't want to be doing this and God says yes but just think first how I can use that in my purposes in the work of the gospel second thing I wanted to say very quickly is, is the pace of the Bible and Bible study and evangelism what I love in this example here we've got in Acts 8 of sharing about Jesus Christ is the fact that right at the very heart of it are the scriptures and, and, and you know, let's not forget it wasn't the case that Philip pulls out his little pocket you know, Bible or gets out his PDA and says well look let's just turn to Acts chapter or Isaiah chapter 53 I mean, I mean we're talking about scrolls I mean, if you'd had the whole Old Testament, I don't suppose his chariot would have carried it. And, and it's not the New Testament. He can't say, well, look, what I will do, let's take you to the Gospel and let's just go through and see what Jesus did. All he's got are the Old Testament Scriptures. But Philip still wants to use the Scriptures to share the Gospel. God's Word is the power. God's Word is his channel. God's Word is what he's given us. My friend, it does, I do worry sometimes that in all our desires to speak about Jesus, sometimes we do neglect the place of Scripture. I remember listening to Rico Tice at the London Men's Bible Convention a couple of years back and he was pleading with people that when you're if sharing the Gospel with people, if you've got the opportunity, use the Bible, show them where in the Bible it says what it says. Go and buy them a coffee, say, come on, let's go and have a cup of coffee and we'll sit there for ten minutes and we'll just, we'll just look at a few verses of Scripture. 
And he says, just take them through a few verses of scripture and show them and say, can I meet you again next week? He says, use the Bible. It's what God's given us as the most effective weapon we've got. Please don't be afraid of using the Bible. It's the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will not return to him void. It will accomplish that which he desires when we speak it forth. And thirdly, see the place of baptism. See the place of baptism in this uh, passage. Has baptism got a place in evangelism? I would like to be able to say from these verses that it's made abundantly clear that uh, Philip checks with the guy first to make sure that he's saved and the unit makes it abundantly clear that he has been saved, that he does believe in Jesus Christ before he's baptised. And I guess if you're using an authorised version, you'll have verse 37 there where Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That would seem a wonderful proof text for the order of baptism and the place of baptism. Uh, the only problem with that is that uh, it's only a few of the later manuscripts or some of the later manuscripts that have that verse in it. And so there is very real question as to whether or not that verse ever was in the original scriptures. But my friend, that doesn't matter because there is place after place after place after place in Scripture where it makes it so clear that the order and the place of baptism, Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptised. Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised. Acts 10.47, can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Acts 16, 14 and 15 The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her household were baptised. Jesus himself put it so clearly, didn't he? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Make disciples of all nations. See them saved. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Has baptism got a place in evangelism? Yes, it has. Not as the means to be saved, but as what a person does once they are saved. Philip wasn't just content to see this person saved. He wanted to see him standing as a Christian. He wanted to see him professing Christ as a Christian. He wanted to see him going back to Africa with a gospel to preach and an assurance in his heart and an obedience in his life. My friend, is that our goal when we speak to others of Christ? I pray that it is.